Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. It's Curious City, where we take your questions about Chicago and the region and investigate, report, explore from WBEZ. I'm Jesse Dukes. Curious City questioner Mark Lichty is a cultural anthropologist by trade, but he's also into history. One of the ways I try to relate to any place where I'm living is to try to understand what it was like in the past. Mark knows before Chicago became a city, Thousands of Native Americans were living in the area, and he knows most were pressured to leave in 1833. He thinks our history books have all but ignored those people. The fact that most Chicago histories begin in 1830, (laughs) that says it all. So Mark wants to know more about how Native Americans fit into the history of Chicago, their impacts on today's world. And there's a familiar way to answer Mark's question. We could focus on remnants from Native Americans, the diagonal streets like Milwaukee Avenue or Vincennes Avenue that were Indian trails before they were Chicago streets, or the Indian names we see all over, Wabash, Washtenaw, Skokie, Michigan, or Chicago. But after researching this, I think there's something else worth thinking about, that the most important remnant of Native Americans in Chicago is actually the city itself that Chicago, one of the country's most important economic centers, a great transportation hub, might not exist as we know it had it not been for Native Americans. In fact, I think we need to consider Native Americans as important as the French and American men who the history books traditionally name as founders. To explore that idea, we're going to look at three eras. One where only Indians lived here, one in which Indians traded with Europeans and other visitors, and one after most Indians were pressured or forced to leave the region. In each of these eras, we'll look at how Indians took advantage of the region's geography, engaged in trade, and used intermarriage in ways that put Chicago on a path to becoming a major American city. We'll start with somebody whose family ties to the region predate the city of Chicago. We have a saying that uh, we walk on the bones of our ancestors, And we say that with pride. This is John Lau. I am a citizen of the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Lau's a professor of history and American Indian studies. My uh, grandmother told me that we've been here uh, since the beginning of time. The latest archaeological evidence, though, indicates that we probably migrated from somewhere in Ontario about a thousand years ago. Lau explains that for hundreds of years, his people, the Potawatomi, were one of several Algonquian language-speaking tribes living in villages scattered throughout the region. They traded, intermarried, got along. It was quite a cosmopolitan area, and all of these people we treated as our cousins. We didn't have a lot of history of warfare or conflict. We had similar worldviews, similar spiritualities. Now, we had the Iroquois to the east and the Dakota to the west. They're not Algonquins, and uh, we did not get along always as well with them. The Potawatomi were also expert builders of birch bark canoes. 
the birch bark canoe was a uh, ingenious bit of indigenous technology. It allowed us to travel uh, great distances uh, very quickly as they moved so quickly along the top of the water that they were like wave eaters. They were the Jaguar, the Lamborghini of uh, transportation. The canoes allowed the Potawatomi to take advantage of Chicago's geography. Only a short distance separates the Chicago River, which connects to Lake Michigan, from the Des Plaines, which eventually goes to the Mississippi. Indians could carry or portage those lake canoes over that short gap and have access through waterways to upstate New York, the Atlantic coast, the Mississippi River, or the Rocky Mountains. And well before European traders showed up, it was open for anybody to use. There was nobody controlling that portage. The land is Mother Earth. Uh, You can't own it. It's like owning the air, owning the stars. You can't do it. Uh, But you can have a claim to territory that this is where my family's always picked blueberries, and we'd appreciate it uh, if you don't come and pick our blueberries. Same thing with uh, fishing. So territories, villages, but an openness in geography that made Chicago an ideal place for trade. There was always trade. Uh, People are always interested in getting things from somewhere else. Fascinating things, useful things, beautiful things, powerful things, uh, spiritual things. There's been found uh, copper from the Upper Peninsula. There's been found mica shells from the Gulf of Mexico. There's been flint found from the Rocky Mountains. It comes from only one place, Yellowstone. So, before European traders showed up, Indians had already established Chicago as a trading center. When French explorers Louis Joliet and Jacques Marquette arrived in 1673 to explore the Mississippi River looking for trade routes, Indians showed them the Chicago portage. Joliet and Marquette are recognized in the history books, but it's the Indians who showed them how Chicago connected the east to the west and the north to the south. A new era came to Chicago in the 1790s. That's when the first non-native permanent settler, Jean-Baptiste du Sable, arrived. He's another man who now gets cited in the history books as one of the founders of Chicago. Du Sable was probably mixed race, of French and Afro-Caribbean descent. He set up a trading post and cabin at the mouth of the Chicago River, and other traders later moved in nearby. Susan Sleeper-Smith is a historian who studied how that trade worked. The image that most people have of traders is that they have a little store, right, with a little counter, and behind it are all the goods. That's not how it works. Trade works this way. Indigenous societies trade with kin. They do not trade with strangers. Du Sable has no ability to trade with Indian people just because he has trade goods. He has to have a wife. Du Sable, smartly and quickly and rightly, marries a Potawatomi woman. That is his kin entree into the trade. And he would be primarily trading with her kin relations. Dusable and the other traders brought goods from warehouse cities like New Orleans, Montreal, or Albany. They traded for fur with their Indian allies, often their in-laws, and they took the fur back for more trade goods. That cycle could take two to three years, and Susan Sleeper-Smith thinks Dusable probably timed it to spend the winters with his wife and her family. We don't know much about Dusable's wife. 
She was baptized as Catherine. Their marriage lasted 30 years. They had at least two children. Susan Sleeper Smith says marriages like the DuSables empowered Potawatomi women, but they weren't just about business. These are mostly young men and young women. And if you're in your 20s, you probably don't want just a business relationship with a woman. (laughs) Her ability to distribute goods, her ability to get fair prices for her kin gives her tremendous prestige. I mean, if you are married to a trader and you are translating, I mean, DeSable doesn't come into the Great Lakes and speak Potawatomi. He needs someone to translate for him. So DuSable is considered a founder of Chicago, the creator of a permanent settlement. But he couldn't have been a successful trader without his Potawatomi wife, Catherine. So maybe she's a founder, too. The trading post the DuSables established grew into a small trading village in the early 1800s, right at the mouth of the Chicago River. From 1800 to 1830, a few hundred people lived there, many in mixed marriages, like the DuSables. Trader Antoine Wilmette, for instance, lived with a Potawatomi wife, Arconche. Now, non-Indians weren't really supposed to be there, according to treaties. It was Potawatomi land. But John Lau says the Potawatomi were okay with a few traders in the area. Trade made life easier. It was a lot easier to cook in a kettle pot than do the boiling with rocks in a uh, clay pot. Firearms made hunting a lot easier. The clothing, the Potawatomi in particular, were fashionistas. We developed this style. I'm not sure where it came from. But apparently at some point we decided that we loved wearing turbans, which makes me laugh. We're making a lot of money. We were a very powerful uh, tribe. We were thriving. We were doing much better than the settlers were. That didn't last. By 1830, the U.S. government decided it wanted all the lands east of the Mississippi, and the Indians would have to go. They pressured leaders of the Potawatomi, as well as Ojibwe and Odawa, to sign the 1833 Treaty of Chicago. It stated that in exchange for some land west of the Mississippi, and promises of cash payments, some never fulfilled, nearly all of the Indians living around Chicago would have to leave. The Pokagon Band of the Potawatomi negotiated an exception, but otherwise, most Native Americans left. So when our questioner Mark points out that Chicago histories tend to start in 1830, This is what he's talking about. Those histories ignore the fact that before the Indians were displaced, they contributed to the establishment of Chicago. I brought this idea to historian Anne Keating. She studies how Chicago transitioned from a tiny multi-ethnic trading settlement to a vast industrial city during the 1800s. And she agrees. Native Americans were important. The layering of the Indian era of the Potawatomi and their forebears on this landscape is certainly one that creates patterns and traditions that continue from one era to to the next. The Potawatomi traded in Chicago, so did Europeans and Americans. The Potawatomi farmed wheat and corn, so did American settlers. And perhaps the biggest contribution was the knowledge Indians imparted about how to take advantage of this region that portage again that connected the Great Lakes to the Mississippi. I would give Americans credit to have figured it out eventually, but what the Potawatomi were already doing made itself evident to Americans who came into this region, that these 
roots were incredibly valuable. That knowledge of Chicago's geography led to a canal planned in the 1830s, built in the 1840s. That drew investment in people to Chicago. The canal led to Chicago's becoming a major railroad hub, and soon the great Midwestern metropolis. If the Indians hadn't shown Chicago's potential to Europeans and Americans, maybe they'd have figured it out. But maybe Milwaukee or St. Louis would have gotten a head start and become the great Midwestern metropolis. And we might have a much different Chicago today. Reporting for this story came from me, Jesse Dukes. Support comes from the Conant Family Foundation. Next time on Curious City... Ready, go! Every year, hundreds of thousands of kids in schools across America learn how to play the recorder and inflict pain on their family's eardrums. So how did this become a thing, and why? A hint from the 1967 movie The Graduate. Are you listening? Just so you Plastics. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org slash curious. Thank you.